Greetings to our listeners and welcome to the 12th episode of Voltec Tech Talks. I'm joined once again by Shabazz Hashmi. How are you doing today, Shabazz? I'm doing well. Thank you, John. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Shabazz. Today, we will be discussing planned obsolescence alongside its younger evil cousin, perceived or psychological obsolescence in the same family, but they're different beasts altogether. So I think a good way to start off with this topic is to highlight a historical example. So the most well-known example of planned obsolescence at least from my scourings of the internet, is the Phoebus cartel. So this was a cartel which existed to control the manufacture and sale of light bulbs, founded in 1925 in Geneva, Switzerland. The cartel included firms such as General Electric, Osram, Philips, among other large light bulb manufacturers. And their most significant act as an organization was to work to standardize the life expectancy of a light bulb at 1,000 hours down from 2,500, which was the effective lifespan of light bulbs up until that point. And this just highlights the typical struggle that suppliers and manufacturers have to face down in that if their products were perfectly reliable and did last forever, they would be forced to go out of business owing to their need to to enforce or encourage planned obsolescence in this situation. However, you could argue that they enforced it because any smaller manufacturers or companies who were not in compliance with their set 1,000-hour life expectancy of light bulbs would be fined significantly. Really? Yeah, so you'd get a huge financial slap on the wrist if you were making light bulbs that were too good. <laughs> and so obviously there was a fair bit of science that had been going on in the prior few decades to improve the quality of light bulbs and get their life expectancy well above what it started as. And they had to do the opposite in order to get it back down. So they actually established you know, more R&D development teams just so that they could find the optimal you know, model with which they could reduce the lifespan of light bulbs and do it as cheaply as possible as well. Now, light bulbs are a funny, I guess, example for all of this to have arose in because there's an example of this light bulb called the Centennial Bulb, which exists in a Californian fire station, sorry, which has been burning virtually, virtually continuously for 117 years straight. I believe it's only had a couple of days off. And yeah, in essence, that is a good illustration of the scheming nature of this Phoebus cartel and that their suggestions may not have been truly in the interests of the common good. <laughs> yeah, and that's crazy because you think about like perfect competition in economics, right? In a perfectly competitive market, that's the whole point of competition, isn't it? You have people innovating or changing the game to make things better so that people are incentivized. I really wonder how they were able to find people for building light bulbs that were too good. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre that that, was a possibility, you know, that these, this organization or cartel that we should call it because that's what it effectively is, would be able to have this sort of, I don't know, I, I suppose they had legislative power in that they could find people for 
just making light bulbs that are too effective, but this is just an arbitrarily enforced rule so that they could glean more money from their customers. And light bulbs of all things. Like when I think cartel, my mind, go, my mind goes straight into like the drugs, the weapons, but no, the light bulbs. Absolutely, yeah. Isn't that a crazy thought? <laughs> it is crazy because, I mean, obviously these days as well, they're much more reliable than they would have been back then. But even then, 2,500 hours, that's quite a while. That's a 100 days straight, more than that. And so, yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, the fact that they were able to do that at all. Could someone get away with something like that these days with light bulbs? Probably not. I don't think with... Regulation, Something maybe. that's a... Like, if you say it needs to be this energy rating, and there's no way to make those energy rating light bulbs last that long. But it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? If you think about it, these current LED bulbs last way longer than conventional light bulbs, and they consume less energy. Yeah, I think they're meant to be less harmful when they eventually are turned to waste products as well. Um, I may be mistaken in that I think that it may have been the older fluorescent light bulbs that had or the incandescents, I'm not really sure, but were more damaging somehow. Um, yeah, bizarre to think it could be happening with light bulbs back then, let alone now. But when I think cartels as well, what comes to my mind is like OPEC, the oil cartel, basically a lot of the Middle East and Gulf countries, especially the, you know, the, the huge oil producers in that region, they operate as a cartel and they can fix oil prices. So I don't know if it's still ongoing, but I know a couple of months ago, oil prices just plummeted due to some development. I think it was either Russia or the US trying to export their own oil. So they basically just start a pricing war and the Middle East region is just able to outcompete them. And that's anti-competitive practice in that they basically established this huge coalition of the strongest oil producers and in doing so have a sort of protection that to me is kind of parallel to how this Phoebus cartel did what they did because they just gathered up the the most powerful light bulb manufacturers in the region if not the world and worked to deliberately sabotage the way they function so they can continuously yeah. resell to customers you're not axing the price here. You're axing the durability. Indeed. Yeah, it's a different mechanism by which they're, I guess, stamping out competition. But, but it's the same organizational structure. Indeed, yeah. Wow, and I'm just shocked that it was even documented that they actually reduced the quality of their lamps to increase sales. Like, surely that's something you wouldn't want to document. Well, a lot of these companies have gone out of business since, but in in the fact that they were enforcing this reduced lifespan i guess it would be pretty hard for them to refute that that happened at some point in the past considering there would be there would be fines on the books yeah i guess so So, like yeah so another one of the pivotal examples of planned obsolescence well in this example it also leans towards no it more so leans towards perceived obsolescence so general motors was struggling to compete with ford in the 1910s it wasn't failing, but the car business was a tricky one to be in during that time period. And most people who are looking for a car would have already bought one from Ford. So why would they want to have bought one from GM? So GM General Motors began to employ new tactics. 
began introducing different makes and models and a premium line as well and did demographic research and as well to find to their surprise that it was women who were making 85% of all purchases to date however till that date however the only cars being used were a solid black as they had not yet figured out a type of paint that would not fade so all Ford vehicles were black and Alfred Sloan, the head of General Motors in the 1920s, or at least marketing, with this information in mind, decided to make the car experience a more aesthetic one and to try and offer a range of colors and to make the vehicles more elegant. So smooth them out and get rid of those rougher edges and make them just more easy on the eyes, I suppose. And fun little side fact on that, the breakthroughs made with regards to developing durable, durable colored paint led to nail polish paint as we know it today. Wow. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Car developments lead to... Not that I use it much, but yeah, that's insane. Indeed, fashion developments. <laughs> so that's quirky. And anyway, so to quote Sloan, we make the superficial things the key to the purchase. So the fins on the back, a better radio, new upholstery, all the sorts of accessories, the kind of what would have been fri considered frivolous things, they become essential. So Sloan said, we want the consumer to buy a new car every year. So this gambit with changing nothing but the aesthetics paid off. And by 1927, Henry Ford had to revamp his manufacturing and eventually release different lines and colors to emulate GM, who had won the consumer war. And another side note, when you buy the Chevrolet Bel Air, it would come with a catalog for the new one that was to be coming out the next Christmas. Wow. Building in this sort of inbuilt disappointment to the consumer leading you to be desiring the one that you have yet to own and this could this was eventually described as psychological obsolescence so you're conditioned from the moment you buy it to be understanding of how there is a product to be coming out in less than a year that will be superior or at least more fashionable than yours but wouldn't that disincentivize sales to an extent because, like, if I'm after a new phone, for instance, and I know a new one's coming out in four months, I'm going to hold back. And I know a lot of people do that. Yeah, I've considered that. Um, I think, well, it. I think we just have to consult the history on this one, right? So the fact that that did end up winning General Motors, the consumer war, kind of suggests that maybe that alternative motion, you know, working against the plant, perceived obsolescence of having an item that is soon to be out of date isn't as severely affected by the, I guess, the counteraction, which would be people waiting to make that purchase in fear of being out of and date. And every year they must be seeing that, right? Because you said this happened in every year's magazine. So even if you buy it next year, you're going to see the next next year's car in the magazine. There's no winning. So just never get into the market. Ever. That's the only way you can. <laughs> never drive. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? And you wouldn't think that, like, when I think about planned obsolescence, the last thing that comes to mind is car manufacturers adding new features in there. I mean, these things still happen today, right? Like, I recently bought a car, and the interior is pretty nice. But the one that came out, like, that's about to come out in 2021, they've added a little logo in the interior. Wow. So I feel like... And they've cranked the price up like 10 grand. Is the little logo the only thing that you, that's tangibly different? 
It's got an, an interior revamp. That was their justification. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Well, th- there it it's is. At still play. happening. Do you feel like your car is made inferior already? Yes. No. <laughs> of course not. I mean, I lose sleep over it. What can I say, John? <laughs> yeah. Of course. I think. Well, I I hope that given the degree to which people have been subjected to well, rampant planned obsolescence or perceived obsolescence over the past several decades that we're becoming more sensitive to it, I hope, in a in an objective sense, in that hopefully we can identify that these companies are trying to do this. And apparently in instances where there are manufacturers or designers or engineers developing products, it is part of the bottom line that you should try to develop or build weak points into these products. So for example, you have like phones built 20 years ago, which are glued so tightly in certain places that it is literally impossible to pull it apart to replace components that fail within. And then you'd have to just break the plastic thereby rendering it unusable. And you can apply that to a lot of other items that are basically put together in such a way that you know there's just or even recently like phones have you noticed so which phone do you have do you have like an iphone or android i have a samsung s7 so you're right before the point where they remove the removable batteries right can you take your battery out um oh no the s6 i think you can yeah i don't think i can there's there's literally no backside on this thing at least that i can see it's all smooth yeah so did you know that i think it was the s6 or definitely the s5 had this where you could actually open your phone up, and if your battery was going bad, you wouldn't have to ship it to the manufacturer. You'd just pop the back cover off, throw a new battery in, snap it back on. It would be instant. But now that we have to actually send it back to the manufacturer, maybe pay for shipping, pay for the repairs, pay for the labor, there's so many things disincentivizing us from getting a battery replacement. That's an interesting point, yeah. So... Samsung's used to be more modular, but now they're also going down that route of making it impossible to service individual components, thereby requiring you to just fully upgrade to the next model, which is obviously a better business opportunity for these companies, but worse for us, worse for the environment, it's more wasteful. So my Samsung screen cracked a few weeks back. And I just found it so shocking that a phone that's like four years old, they're asking for like $500 for a screen replacement from Samsung. 500 And for some glass. Yeah, around that price. Yeah. And you go, do I or do I just, should I put 500 in to fix this phone using that psychological ob- obsolescence, right? It's like three years old now. Or do I put that extra like 500 and something in and get a new phone get a third party screen repair oh uh, yeah well third party screen repairs are good but i guess i like having the peace of mind personally that like it's been done right because i've seen so many places around here where it doesn't go to plan they can go somewhat wrong yeah so yeah that's an interesting example of the modularity of phones um another one that comes to my mind is that did you know that um they used to, that it used to be common for you to know your local TV repairman? There would be people who go door to door in towns whenever you'd call them up, 
having a television issue so they could replace some of the tubes or dials or whatever is amiss on your television and they would fix it that way. But now, nowadays, TVs are made cheaply and flat screens tend to not really be as easily repairable as those larger televisions that had a lot more room around on the inside. And that's another example, I guess, of an industry just... I guess sort of organically moving towards this business model, which advantages them more in the long run. And I think this is a trend that we've just seen in a lot of different industries. Think university textbooks, for example. Oh, I didn't think of those. Walk me through that. So to anyone who's had to buy textbooks for school, uni, TAFE or whatever, I would assume that basically every year or two, perhaps three, if you're lucky, they would refresh the course catalog with regards to the books that are required in order to, you know, do the correct content. And so they're released so frequently. And many would argue that it's not to do with getting up-to-date information, but having regular releases or re-releases of new editions of the same textbook, which have marginal or even negligible differences between them. This is just... A, a good way in which publishers can maintain a consistent business model. These textbooks, if you've ever tried, cannot be really resold at a reasonable price. Like I've had to buy a $200 textbook and then be happy to sell it for $30 or something like that. Really? Yeah, there's not really a good market for them and they tend to really scam you when they take them back in. Like I think you're getting 25% back, you'd be winning. <laughs> Oof, that's brutal. Yeah, and fields relevant to those textbooks generally do not change so radically that you can justify with each passing year that the addition of that information. Like, I think this is an obvious scam on the <laughs> in terms <laughs> of scam. Wow, that's strong words. In terms of well, publishers like publishers need to stay in business. We need them for certain, I guess, features and the services they offer. But this is seemingly the way in which they have decided it is most optimal for them to have, you know, a consistent and maintainable business model. Because if they weren't, you know, they'd be in the same situation as Ford back in the day when they had basically just sold a number of cars, but then people would not feel inclined to upgrade them or get new ones although i guess that's not a great example actually because they weren't so reliable back then but yeah that's i never really thought about the used textbook market that much i usually get all of my textbooks digitally so just resale is completely off the table in the first place yeah so did i i mean they're too expensive anyway to get physically so and i'll give another interesting example um women's tights otherwise known as pantyhose but Little known to a lot of people in the early 20th century, they were virtually indestructible. They were made of nylon. So if you think of the fact that these things are made of a kind of plastic, they shouldn't really be that destructible. But again, you can imagine that if you were to sell them these highly reusable tights, which are indestructible, so they're never going to get torn, you would run out of clients very quickly. And you used to be able to tie them together and tow a car with them, but then they they went on un, they underwent the same R and D process as the Phoebus cartel, 
and found out ways to make them weaker and cheaper so that they could monetize that and have a sustainable business model. Because again, there are... I love how you use the word sustainable in this business model. It's ironic. Because this is... I know, right? This is nothing but unsustainable from a global perspective. Yeah, it's sustainable only in terms of the business supporting itself long term. Their finances. But yeah, I think it raises interesting questions because there are a lot of, I mean, in discussing these examples, we can see that there are a lot of reasons or incentives for these businesses to have these, I guess, detrimental effects on their products so that they can simply continue to you know make a make some margins into the future and so how can we curb this wastage are there industries that maybe should you know be government owned support like to avoid this wastage because i just see it as an enormous waste of potential but there's so many ways around this do you know what i mean like there are so many ways to rationalize like planned obsolescence or psychological obsolescence you just say hey we're releasing a new feature like did you hear in eu they said too many cables are going to waste why can't every phone just have one charging cable one type of charging cable so why can't we all stick to a standard and let's keep it there and then all of these cables that go to waste and destroy the environment won't destroy the environment so did they make it's pretty simple. some legislation about that already or no i don't think they could pass it through i think companies like apple were arguing that you're stifling our innovation to have a universal charger yes we need to have an innovative cable well i think we they've somehow standardized themselves though haven't we aren't we going to USB-C across the board you'd think so but haven't you noticed how iphone has been lightning since like what 08? No, no, it can't be 08. It must have been like 2011, around those years. But we've stuck to Lightning, and USB-C has been standard in Android for like three years at least now, and that's being standard. I think the first time I had USB-C was like four or five years ago. Yeah, I'm still a bit behind with that, with respect to that, but... Yeah. The, the new iPhones are USB-C, and like, even right? It's not Aren't even they, or... like... Are they not? No, they're not. The latest iPhone that came out, the iPhone 11 Pro Max and the 11s, they're all lightning. Well, how else are they going to sell those dongles, my man? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now you're getting it. And there's always going to be ways around regulation. You know, you're going to say, hey, you're stifling my innovation. I want three pins in my charger because it's better. But then you see companies actually changing the game, right? So have you heard of, like, I think it's super fast VOOC charging? No. Who are they? Super VOOC charging. I think it's a 65-watt um, charger made by a Chinese company. I think it's Oppo. So you can charge your phone apparently super fast with this. Um, they've actually released a 125-watt charger, uh, Oppo. This is zero to one. Let me just check how fast this thing goes. So you can get from zero to a hundred percent in just twenty minutes. On a on on a new f- flagship sort of model phone. On your phone, yeah. Wow. Through this charger. So maybe there That's is a point to be made. Maybe there is a point to be made. Do you want to wait three hours next to your phone, or do you want it to be done in twenty minutes? Wait, but sorry, is maybe the, the argument key- you're making that there's a point to be made for? not standardizing any of these charges so that yeah innovation can be made 
That's what I'm saying. What if the next step forward requires a cable change of some sort? How does this thing function? Is it wireless? No, it has a USB cable, doesn't it? No, it's wired. Yeah, so they have a 65-watt wired charger, I believe, and a 125-watt wireless. I mean, 125 wired and 65 wireless, which is insane. I think my iPhone still charges at 10 watts. Okay, that's a big factor difference there. <laughs> I know. So, like, there's always an argument, you know? there's always You can always play devil's advocate to your heart's content and get some reasonable argument towards waste and planned obsolescence. Like, have you heard of Dr. Martens? Like the, the shoes. Doc Martens? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know if you know about, about their for life range. Have you heard of that? No. Do they have, like, some kind of guarantee on its durability? Yeah. So Doc Martens said that, I think it was a few years back, they've had this for a while, they had a for life collection. And the whole idea is you can buy these shoes once and you can get them replaced as many times as you want if you have a lifetime collection product. I love that. Okay. Yeah. I have a pair of Doc boots, but I was not aware of this. So I can, you know, wear that with a badge of pride, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They cancelled this program in 2018. Oh, okay. I take it back. Yeah. No pride <laughs> there. So, yeah, what I'm trying to say is, like, it's everywhere, really. Well, because I guess it's too too hard for them to do that, right? Like, that's just a... It's like a anti-business practice in order to... Anti-business or pro-consumer? Well, it's pro-consumer, which is inevitably bad for business is it though okay that's a that's a sweeping statement i won't stand behind that but with regards to supplying boots to replace customers boots for life i would say in that case it is yeah i think their executives must have just like taken over the company and been like we do what now is that where we're alone we give people free boots (laughs) no chance how are we making money you know so they got rid of it and apparently like this is all anecdotal after this point Apparently, Doc Martens have gone way worse in quality. You know, it's just gone downhill. Wow. Yeah, well, there's the the same trend that we observed in these other companies. So, yeah, apparently, um, there are a number of examples that I can't name because they're extinct companies at this point. But a lot of appliance manufacturers from the earlier years of the 1900s don't exist anymore because they made items that were too durable and they couldn't, you know, provide that resale, a reason for a customer to keep coming back. Exactly. And so we're seeing the opposite end of the spectrum here with Doc Martens going from their pro-consumer, pro-ecology, pro-environment stance to just making their boots disposable. If I asked you a question, let's say you were a smartphone manufacturer what do you think the most common thing is that breaks when you drop your phone? Screen. Why? What is it made of? Glass. Have you ever wondered why we have full glass phones now? Why does the back need to be glass? Oh, there you go. <laughs> right? Like surely just a hard plastic will do. Or not even like a hard plastic, but go with something like... I mean, surely there's another material. Surely. Carbon fiber. And who wants to walk around with a carbon fiber? There you go. So there is a question there, right? Are these things on purpose? 
talking about phones, do you remember that whole iPhone debacle that happened earlier? Which one, sorry? Yeah, right. Which one? There's so many. Well, I guess there was Flexgate, right? So iPhone 6s, I believe, were flexing. So you just have them in your pocket, allegedly. And you could sit down. It didn't even need to be your back pocket, I don't think. And it would just bend. Yes, I do recall hearing about that. That's super problematic. Right? But Apple fixed it. I don't know if that was planned obsolescence or that. Maybe it was just a mistake. But it's pretty crazy. Or when they were slowing down their phones. Apple admitted to slowing down their own phones. Now, their justification, what was it? Do you remember? Um, I believe it was due to, with the software updates, they were saying that in order to preserve the life of your phone's battery, they they just slow it down and they basically underclock your processor. Yes. So they were caught. So for uh, you guys tuning in that aren't that techy, So you can take a computer chip, right? And you can say this chip is going to run, let's say this is not an accurate number. Let's say it's going to run 100 times a second. It's going to do a math problem for me. I'm telling you that if you give it more power, you can make it go faster and do more problems faster. If you give it less power, you obviously get a lot less performance. So hardware manufacturers get the choice to choose how much power to put on these chips, right? And when you give it less power, of course, it gets slower. And that's underclocking. So Apple's argument was, apparently, that phone batteries are getting old. Batteries deteriorate over time. So what we're going to do for you, instead of having a cheap battery replacement, which is like 20 bucks, we're going to make your phone insanely slow. Because that's the better solution here. What I find so shady about that is that it seemingly discounts the idea that perhaps a lot of the people who are working on these prior generation phones have replaced their batteries and so already have fresh batteries but are still subject to this underclocking. And Oh, no, that wouldn't happen. So it checks your battery durability. Okay, gotcha. But they should be telling their customers, hey, we're slowing down your phones. You think you need a new iPhone 10, a new iPhone 11, the new iPhone 12, because your old iPhone is slow. Yeah. Fun fact, we're the ones who are dialing that knob down. <laughs> Put a new battery in, it'll be fast again. Who would have thought? Right? Who would have thought? And this is the same company that isn't providing independent repair centers with official parts. Yo, in, I, I believe um, it was in France they were taking significant issue with that iPhone problem with, with them deliberately slowing down the phones. And yeah, the EU has the strongest consumer protection laws, like generally speaking as a, I guess, relative superpower. And France is kind of at the head of that pack as well. And so Apple was for a period investigated for their supposed planned obsolescence. I don't think anything ever came of it, but yeah, France was also, we're also hot on the scent of Apple's sneakiness with regards to this issue. I think that they should just organically let the phone die without interfering or have a little warning light. Be like, okay, give them a notification maybe once a month. Being like, you're a battery condition. That's what Macs used to do. Do you know my Mac used to tell me 
when my battery wore down below 85% durability, it used to tell me, hey, something's wrong with your battery, go get it fixed. And that's funny, because the lifespan of a laptop far outweighs, or is far longer than battery damage. So it would take you, what, like people keep their laptops for five, six years, batteries wear away over two. But maybe the smartphone cycle is different. Maybe that's why they're not telling people on phones. Maybe they want phone people buying phones more than their laptops. Maybe they know they can get away with it. Yeah, it might be something to be said for the size of batteries having something to do with the rate at which they decay. Exactly. But anyway, yeah, EU, pretty strong. I feel like the European Union hits hard though, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure about how much success they've had in these fields, but I do... I do like that they advocate for these strong consumer protection laws. So it's been pitched that they would ban all items which are lacking removable components, as we were speaking about earlier, as many items are made de facto unrepairable due to making it impossible to, for example, remove specific broken components or the broken components are part of the whole, thereby making it too difficult or prohibitively expensive to do so. So European lawmakers are in essence trying to encourage a circular economy, which I would and I'm sure most would agree is ultimately in societies and the environments as well as consumers slash individuals' best interests. And 70% of consumers in the EU would rather repair their products rather than buy new ones. And I think that's in line with most people. Most people agree that you know, replacement culture spurred on by planned obsolescence or perceived is inherently wasteful. And that's just a pitfall of how many of our businesses are modeled, I would suppose. Yeah, and it's like an utter shame. I just looked this up, right? Back to Apple for one sec, because we're talking about the EU's intervention in these things, right? And they're keeping a strong stance. So apparently... Um, Apple reached a 25 million settlement with the French competition after allegations of planned obsolescence. So it looks like they did do a bit of a hit. Wow, okay. This is according to Lexology.com. I find it curious that, you know, upon witnessing France's success in, I guess, that settlement, that other countries wouldn't follow suit. Because surely, at least in the EU, they'd have the same claims in that they all live under that same consumer protection law. Or maybe France specifically has super strong laws. Yeah, like right now, there's a whole French consumer group, apparently. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher this. It's been long since I last spoke French. But it's halt à la obsolescence programmée. So stop planned obsolescence. It's insane. And it actually works. Thanks, France. Okay, so that's a promising notion that they did actually get that settlement. Yeah, and in Italy, Samsung and Apple were both fined 5 million euros in 2018. There you go. That's awesome. It seems to be happening. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to believe that in the long run, society and business will trend towards what is more rational and logical, which is certainly not disposable disposability of things like phones. And I'd like to think that eventually we'll circle back to having a more circular economy. 
Pro- probably not for a while because these business entities are still, you know, hugely powerful and not regulated in that way. Um, but I do think it's a matter of time, possibly not in our lifetimes, though. <laughs> this has been a long, a long-term story. Yeah, you'd hope so, right? You'd hope so. Like, look at the pollution, right? We're having extreme weather events. Not to get too real here, but like, yeah, I don't want to align with any political views, but climate change looks pretty real right about now. I'd have to concur with you. So it will get curbed at some point, especially with regards to climate change fear, but... You'd hope so. You'd hope so. Yeah. you, You can see that inaction is still prevalent on with regards to every field of climate change. Yeah, and so you just let the market... I would expect yeah. this to have taken a backseat for a while. And you let the market dictate everything, right? So announce a flashy new phone, you'll have millions of people buying it. I mean... Indeed. How do you stop that? <laughs> you can't in a free market. That's the thing. Exactly. Hard problems. And it's societal, it's structural... So, yeah. It's economical and environmental. It's social. Isn't it? Social. How many times... Very much social, People yeah. think their phones dictate who they are. Some people are just super enthusiastic about tech, and they'll get the new thing every time just because they want to experience it. Myself included, which I admittedly am not proud of, you know? I guess it's a symptom of just, I don't know, our societal conditioning, but oh well, not much we can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> Just have a forty-minute podcast about planned obsolescence. <laughs> oh well, because we're part of the problem. Well, we are. We there's no denying that, but yeah, I'll make sure to get a different version of Doc Martens next time that actually have lifetime guarantees that aren't Doc Martens. Good luck with that. They're long gone. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, why don't you make your own Doc Martens? If you make your own shoes, you'll know how to repair your own shoes. It's a good call. Okay. Next podcast. Next podcast. You can tell us how you went. Awesome. Well, I think that just about wraps up today, perhaps, Shabazz. What do you think? Have any closing remarks? Yeah, definitely. This was a good one. It was a good one. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Hopefully, you guys listening are better than we are. And you're actually taking care to make sure you're not being wasteful and not falling to this psychological obsolescence. And hopefully in the long run, we will all be better. Exactly. What a way to end it. <laughs> Alrighty, cheers, Shabazz. Have a good one. And to our listeners, thanks very much. Thank you. Signing off.